So thanks for joining who's joined and hopefully we'll get more people trickling in. My name is Andy Kowalski. I am a practicing interventional nephrologist in Chicago, uh, actually born and raised in Chicago, went to Loyola University. I am an IMG, went to St. George's. And then I came back, did my residency at University of Illinois, did my chief year there, did my fellowship at Northwestern, did my chief year there as well. And then in both respects and where I'm at currently, I've had the opportunity to work with resident development, um, graduate medical education, and I've been closely intertwined with the residency interview process through this whole period. Um, I've had opportunities to sit on a bunch of committees in both fellowship and in residency. And I'm just hoping to share some tidbits and tricks that I found over the years that tend to work. Um, what I mean by that is I've seen, well, let me take a step back. So when I was applying for residency, so this is back in 2011, the, there wasn't much out there. I mean, we had student doc, we had, um, core wasn't out there yet. Student doc was kind of like the, the big forum that was there. And that was our only resource really. I mean, you talked a couple of attendings here and there, but a lot of them just had experience at the hospitals that they were residents at, and then they just became attendings there. So in terms of casting a wide net and trying to hit other states and so forth, it wasn't really a thing. So, you know, looking at student doc, and I, I laugh at this now, but I always say that I'm shocked that I was even accepted to a residency program because, you know, you, you read these forums and, you know, every so often you had a couple of posts that were awesome. They were, you know, talking about these great experience, but most of it was a venting session, right? It was very rarely was it a good venting session. Usually it was something average or something terrible. Um, and then, you know, you get panicked, you start freaking out, you don't know what to believe. We didn't have any online like classes or anything that we can take like there are now. So, and we definitely didn't have Twitter um, or anything like this. So this, you know, is, was completely foreign. So I remember reading, you know, student doc and they would put up templates on how to formulate your personal statement. They would put up templates on uh, how you should dress, how you should act for residency. They would put up things on, you know, when you should make eye contact. I remember I and took a little chuckle at that one and, you know, how you should answer certain questions. And so that's what I did. Um, and then when I was going through these applications as an attending already, then I, what I realized is like, oh my gosh, like every personal statement reads the same, like every single you know, applicant kind of says the same thing. And then, you know, you like sit there and if you don't make good notes, at the end of the day, everyone kind of blends together. There's no one that really stands out. And then you have something odd that happens and you're like, wow, that's, you know, this person I remember. And then three months later, when you're doing the ranking process, you're like, yeah, I remember this person. And I got a really fun story about that too. But one thing that makes me laugh even to this day was on the forums, they were always saying everyone should wear a dark suit and a red tie. And women should wear, you know, a darker Navy kind of like business attire. And then one article that pops per se. And I already bought my suit because I was poor. Um, there was a sale at Perry Ellis. So I got a suit for 70 bucks. I was happy as ever. And the only tie I had was a blue tie because that was my favorite and that's what I wore. And I went to the interview and every single person had 
a dark suit, red tie, and I was the only one that wore gray and blue. And I was like, oh my God, this is really weird. Like now I'm standing out. And looking from the other perspective, that's one way to get people to remember you, you know? So it's true, but I have my own little tidbit on what to do then as well. So um, for starters, are there any questions about, you know, interviews, how you should answer questions, certain questions that you're stuck on or anything about how to do anything at all before I start going off on tangents? I'm just kind of opening it up to you guys. You guys can type, you guys can, you know, turn your mic off and, you know, chat if you want. Okay. All right, so we have one question. So should I try to be kind of funny during interviews or keep it serious the whole time? That's a great question. Mixture of both, right? You, one thing with interviews is, especially with, you know, IMGs and, you know, I fall into this category too. We were never taught in med school what an interview was to be like, right? No one ever told us. Um, and I'm not familiar with how AMGs are taught, to be honest with you either, because obviously I wasn't in their shoes. But what I could tell you is it's very awkward being an interviewer and interviewing an applicant. And I try to throw out a joke and I don't get much of a reaction back or everything is always very serious. It tends to start feeling awkward. And I really kind of want to rush the interview along. If you want to be remembered, you know, you want to give them something to remember you by. So if you can crack a quick little joke here and there, you know, within professional boundaries, yeah, if you make them laugh, that's a good thing. Because remember, during the interview process, you're there because your application says you can make it, you can cut it, right? Now they're just kind of weeding people out to see whose personality they can jive with. So I always say that the reason for the interview is one, to see if you can play well in the sand with all your other potential uh, co-workers or residents, and two, to see if you're crazy or not, because that's three years, potentially, even more, that you're going to be with these attendings and residents. You need to be with them, or you need to you need to work well with them. So if you're stiff as a board and you don't have a personality, that might be a strike against you. So definitely throw out a, you know, a little bit of humor here and there. I did that, and I think it worked for me pretty well. All right, next question. Would you recommend scheduling your interviews later in the year so you're more a recent memory? Um, you know, this can go either way. Uh, part of me wants to say yes. Part of me wants to say no. The reason why I want to say no is because there might have been some stellar applicants that interviewed prior to when you're interviewing and they already made up their mind that, yes, you know, we, we really want these people. We're going to rank them higher. We're going to rank them to match. And now there's less spots, quote unquote, potentially when you come in. But, you know, you're also going to be fresher in their mind. I think the better way to approach it is don't even worry about it. 
if you go in and you're going to have a stellar interview because of the way you're acting, your personality shines, you make them laugh, you make them feel like they want to be your friend, they're going to remember you whether it's the first day of interviews or the last day of interviews. So next question, what does a PD faculty expect from an applicant when questioning the program? You know, it's really up to you. Um, they, they don't really expect specific questions. What they want to know is they want to know what you're interested in. So just like when you're applying to fellowship, I'm going to use this as an example. If you want to apply to cardiology, you don't have to have cardiology research in your residency background. All they want to see is that you are interested in medicine, you're interested in residency, you're interested in just advancing the field. Now, cardiology research obviously helps a ton, but they just want to see that you're doing something. Same thing with these questions. The same equation applies. As long as you're asking questions that you want to know about the program, especially if you can phrase a question that allows them to know or hint at that you want to better yourself, they're going to love that. So the big thing about interviews is they want to know about your personality and your emotional integrity. So if you're the kind of person that grows from X, Y, and Z, they love that. They want to see people that grow and excel. So if you want to ask a question because there's a particular you know, pathway that they have, or there's, you know, the type of residency offers a little bit more focus on one thing over the other, doesn't matter, then yeah, absolutely ask that because as long as you're interested, or if you're interested about um, one good question, if you're looking for questions is, you know, if you didn't get the answer yet, you can always try to spin a question on how can the program help you become a better individual. A lot of program directors do like answering that question because they get to show off how good their program is, but it also gives them an idea of how you're thinking because you want to better yourself. Next question, should I try stalk the PD on social media? I love it. <laughs> and play into their interests. I'm going to go on their Twitter page and find out uh, that they're a gamer. Should I try to mention how? Um, I think... I would say it's not wrong, but I would keep that as like an ace up my sleeve, right? I, I wouldn't show that you're a stalker. You know, you might come off as one, you know, everyone's different. Everyone takes things different. You know, maybe you're, you know, asking your question, your tone is a little off and all of a sudden they perceive it as like, whoa, this is odd when you're actually trying to be funny and so forth. So on a safe level, probably not, but, you know, if there's dead space in the conversation, you can always throw something out like, yeah, you know, I was on Twitter and across my feed popped up this and I noticed that, you know, you wrote about it like, hey, that's super cool. We have common interests. And then you can use that to spark up a new conversation. You never want dead space in your interview. You know, you, you want the conversation going. And if you can control the conversation, that's even better. So if they kick off the first question, but the way you answer you're forcing them to ask more questions about what you want, then that's how you control the interview. Does that make sense? <laughs> that's awesome. 
So one thing, um, when I was listening to the match madness yesterday on the interview questions, there were some questions that, oh, I'll, I'll get to mine in a second. Um, I was going to end with my points anyways, but I see, do you have a pre-interview score and a post-interview score to rank the candidate or is it the, oh, okay. So yes and no. Um, so when I was a resident, we, it was very subjective. So what we did is we asked whatever questions we wanted, but there was always a set of questions that the program gave us that they wanted us to at least attempt to ask just to kind of dig a little deeper into the applicant's personality or whatever. So, you know, it was like those typical hard questions, like, you know, tell me a time you failed and you rose above it or tell me your strength, you know, the typical ones that everyone's usually afraid of. Um, but other than that, we could ask whatever we want. And what we would do is we would make notes in the corners and that's how we ranked the applicants. The more we wrote, obviously the better, you know, or worse they were. Um, in my fellowship, there was a one to five score that we used. You know, so one being the worst, five being the best. So we did something like that. And then when we were on um, the rank day, then we would bring up our score sheets and then we would just talk about what we wrote. And if we really liked someone, we put an asterisk down. Um, we put an X if we didn't. So everyone had their own way of doing it. But it's, it's nothing like standardized. Every program has a different way of approaching it. So we did two different ways based on two different programs. So how would you balance being yourself with being uh, what your recruiter would want from a candidate? Well, here's the thing. A recruiter would want you as yourself. I would not try to, I would not try to fake what I think the recruiter wants me to be, right? I think it's way more, I th put it this way. You yourself as a person are way more interesting than what you think someone else would want you to be. And that comes from experience that I've had as an interviewer. I can't tell you how many times or how much I've learned about cricket talking to applicants. I think it's awesome. I think I learned the entire sport of cricket talking to applicants because they just find it really interesting. It was either hobbies or it was things that they did in, you know, med school or, you know, they played on like traveling league. It was just like so much fun to listen about it. So I think that's way, way more interesting. So don't try to pretend to be someone you're not right? You are a physician. You're clearly a good physician because your grades and everything got you that interview. Now just show them why they want to meet you and why they want you there. So think of it this way. Think of it almost like a friendship or a partnership, right? You're going to have a relationship with these people. So if you can show them that you're going to be a good person to talk to, to work with, to laugh with, that's all they need. That's what they want. Um, if you have relatively uh, less strong profile and there's red flags or didn't do well in the steps, is there anything that you can do to snag an interview? Like reach out to PDs, existing residents. Yes. And all of those are yeses. Absolutely. So the, the whole thing about getting an interview can come in many different ways. So usually it could be a word of mouth. It could be um, uh, as an example, actually, from the word of mouth perspective, we had one, two, three, in my four years, so between residency and chief year, we had four residents that didn't make the cut in terms of 
the application process, but they did uh, make it into residency because somebody put in a good word in for them. And here's the top part. And because of that, then they excelled and we would have never had them on our radar. So it's not wrong to send a letter saying, hey, you know, I'm here. Now, as we talked about yesterday and um, uh, Match Madness, there's a way you phrase some of these emails too, right? You don't wanna be overly professional. You don't wanna be stiff in your writing. You wanna be like a casual professional in a way, like you wanna be respectful, but you wanna be, you wanna show them that you have a personality in what you're writing. So when you submit your email, you can be as general as, hey, I'm so-and-so, this is my ID number. I loved what I found out about your program. It's something I'm super interested in because this is what I did in my past. And I think that the program can help me grow in X, Y, and Z. And I would love to have a meeting with you guys. You can throw something in like, um, I can see myself flourishing there, you know, anything like that, but just keep it short and just keep it friendly. So that would be the way to do it. If you have residents that put in a good word, that works too. Other attendings, that works too. It's It doesn't hurt. We've, um, we have an intern right now at my institution that did not get an interview, rounded with me. So had an observership with me. I thought the guy was stellar. I called the PD up and they gave him an interview and he got in, which was great. I mean, I, it's not on my accord that he got in. He got in because he interviewed really well, but they, he wasn't on their radar. So how many research publications are required for an IMG to get interviews? And should it be in the specialty? So there really isn't any requirement. All they wanna see is that you care. So, and again, it doesn't have to be in the field. Does it help if it's in the field? Yeah, of course, absolutely. But it doesn't necessarily have to be. And you don't have to have an, a professor status CV to get into residency. So I think I had like one poster on mine. Um, one thing is in medical school, you don't have time. So you're not going to be able to do a lot, right? And if you do, then I don't know how you're sleeping. Because I remember, you know, with my core electives and so forth, they were pretty busy. So they don't expect you to do anything crazy. If you have a publication, awesome, right? It's not going to hurt you, but you don't have to have a crazy amount. So effort, uh, echoing off the red flag question, what is the best approach to speak about them? Mm, this is a great question. Here's the thing, and this is my personal opinion, and uh, I'll tell you why it makes sense. I would not bring it up if it's not brought up, okay? The reason being, you're in an interview and you want them to remember you. I would not give them a reason to remember a red flag about you, right? But... If they ask about it, different story. And then what I encourage you to do now, and this is kind of what I want to end my talks with uh, towards the end, is I want you to think about whatever red flag you have, assuming, you know, whoever has one. And I want you to think if there's a possibility that you have grown from that or you have changed to, for the better. And the reason why I say that is this applies to another question that interviewers love to ask. And that is, you know, tell me about a time where you failed or tell me about a weakness or anything like that. Right. It, it goes in the same lines. I think it's kind of silly 
to give them a weakness, right? But if that weakness allowed you to grow, then that's what you should tell them. So if you're like, hey, you know, I had, you know, this mishap on a test, or hey, I had, you know, this, you know, bit of a confrontation with so-and-so or whatever the case may be, but all this happened afterwards, and this is how I grew and became a better person and all that, then you just told them a whole bunch of stuff. You told them, one, a weakness, but two, you told them that you know how to self-reflect. You told them that you have enough emotional insight to handle what was going on at that time and to spin it instead of being down in the dumps into something that you can use as motivation to grow and you succeeded in growing. That's a huge gold star right there. And you just told them a weakness that you have. So that's what I would try to do. Most often, I would say that most red flags do have a positive aspect to it. And I would encourage everyone to try to think about that. And that's how I would phrase that question or phrase that answer, I mean. But definitely don't bring it up on your own accord. Unless, I mean, I guess you could if you're going to spin it into something incredibly positive to show growth and so forth. But I would not give them a reason to remember that, oh yeah, this is the person that I forgot about that because they have that in the application. So if they ask you, great. If not, don't push it. So I'm applying for the first time uh, with average scores. If I go on match, will my step one score be considered in the next match? So unfortunately, yes. All step scores that are graded at this point um, will stay graded. So you're gonna that's that's what you're gonna have moving forward. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's gonna hold you back. And average scores are not bad at all. I think yesterday's discussion. Um, also showed that a lot of us had average scores and, you know, us meaning the speakers and the attendings that were there and we're all in, you know, relatively good positions or we did pretty well, you know, for ourselves in the long run. So even in interviews, scores have their own, I guess, weight, but it's not everything. Because remember, you're in the interview because you obviously had something present in your application that they liked. And if it was, you know, if something weighed more than your scores at that time, that's great. It doesn't matter, but you're there to shine and show them who you are. So just keep that in mind. So I'm a recent medical graduate, 2020. Um, curious about the past. That's the easiest thing to listen. The question is, does being late in my application affect how many... Yeah, yes, unfortunately. So some programs, and there's not many that are out there, they'll do rolling checks on ERAS. Uh, most programs will download all applications once, and it's usually uh, a day or two after the, the initial submission date. Some of them will wait a week, some of them will do it twice. They'll do it a couple of days after, and then one more time after a week, and they won't do it again if they've received a ton of applications. So if it's, if it's typically a popular program and they're going to receive a thousand applications, they're probably only going to do a one-time download. Um, if it's a program that doesn't receive a lot of applications or for whatever reason, you know, they just don't, then they'll probably do it more than once. So this is a question on externships and observerships. If I were to date in Canada, does it count... And I said, well, PDs accept that since both countries have pretty similar. So 
it's not a core rotation. So what you're basically doing is you're showing face and you're auditioning, you know, to an attending so you can get a really good letter. So yes, yes, you're going to be okay. It, it doesn't matter. That was a very quick answer for that. So another thing that popped into my mind that I wanted to address is um, the way to answer questions. So when I was interviewing, I gave relatively quick answers uh, to my to the questions because I thought that's what they wanted. They wanted a good, quick response, short to the point and all that. And now reflecting back and some applicants over my time have done this and it definitely like stuck with me and I wish I would have done this sooner is use stories to get my point across. And, you know, we might think that we do, but I mean, like really use a story. So the reason why I say that is because stories do quite a bit. Stories have the ability to generate emotion. So if you're telling a good story and it could be about anything, it could be about a personal strength, personal weakness, an opportunity for growth, doesn't matter then what happens is you and your interviewer start meshing. So you have an emotional response that the interviewer has uh, that, to the interviewee, and now there's a connection made. Now stories, I mean, why do we have word of mouth stories is because that's an easy way to remember things. So it's another way for them to remember you because they can tie your answer to a story. And then two, studies have been done that when you're listening to a story that um, recipients that are listening to a story of someone telling the story, their brain waves start to sink. So that's another way that you can generate that connection. So I absolutely love using stories. And I think that's a great way to get it across because with the story, you can throw in a little bit of humor, you can make it as professional or as casual as you want, you show your personality, you give them more insight into your past. And it gives them a lot of information. And I think the more well-rounded you appear, the better chance you're gonna have. Oh, no more questions? These are going great. Did I skip any? I don't think I skipped any. I'm going back through our chat. Repost. Okay. Yeah, I don't think I skipped any. So I talked about being stiff with, um, oh, here we go. Uh, see, controversial question. <laughs> Please don't think less of me. <laughs> so this is great. So how much does CV embellish the whole process? Do PDs know? Ah, well, to tell you the truth, um, I would try to avoid it. The reason being is you don't want to get caught. Um, so anything on your application is fair game. And, you know, as much as we say, oh, they're probably going to ask you this question, they're probably going to ask you this question, they can literally ask you anything on your CV. And if you embellish, hypothetically, let's say you were doing a research project and you kind of add a little bit more oomph on what you did and how you did it, how do you know that this person that's interviewing you doesn't have the same interest and now they start questioning you and now you're backed into a corner. 
right? You don't want to sound like a fool. So be honest. I've heard um, from some of the, uh, some um, observers that round with me have told me stories that, you know, they were told to put in their CV in terms of like skills or hobbies that they like basketball, they like football because they think that's what the program, you know, that they're going to culturally be more similar and the program's going to like them and this and that. And I think that's dangerous because if you don't know the sport or you don't like the sport and that's what you put down and they ask you about it, like now what? Now they caught you in a lie and that's a huge red flag. So just be honest, right? If your hobby is, you know, collecting stamps, put that down. There's nothing wrong with that. This is you. They want to work with you. Sarcasm. <laughs> like in what? In what's in what instance? What do you mean? So, oh, this is a really good question. If you have unpublished research, can you include it in your CV? A bunch of my projects got canceled due to COVID. Um, you know what? Yes, you can. Yes, you can. And you can label it in, and this is kind of like a loophole. Um, you can label it as sometimes in your CV and ERAS, um, they change the dropdown menus sometimes. So what happens is you can get, you can change your, uh, research project as unpublished. Sometimes you can put in in process. Sometimes you can put in pending. Because here's the thing, if you did a project and your intent is to publish it, you're not technically lying by saying that it wasn't done or that it's not pending, you know, pending review, pending anything, because technically it is, right? You're going to submit it to get it done. So you can absolutely you know, cite that in your CV, I would say cite it as work in progress, or, you know, work continuing or however, but yes, absolutely. Because that just it's, it's effort that you're putting in, and it's showing that you're doing something in the field. So absolutely. So not many of us are getting interviews, maybe from an IMG's point of view. <sighs> yeah, I've been hearing that too. And I'm wondering if I'm wondering if it's, I, I think it's multivariable. I think it's related to the virtual process. And I think less people are canceling. So it's a lot easier to go to all your interviews. And I know that most programs have opened up a couple of extra spots for interviews, but not really. So I would say just still keep your head up. Um, you know, there's a, there could be a lot of reasons that are going on, you know, there's still a couple weeks left in the process. And then I would not get myself down if I were you. There's a lot that can still happen. And what could happen is if, God forbid, you know, you don't match, because um, everyone here is, right? Then there's a lot of things that you can do in the interim to beef up your CV and beef up your candidacy as an applicant, and then jump right back into it. So I would never, I would not give up and I wouldn't hang my head down. I think it's just the way things are going right now with COVID and everything being virtual. Um, so what is current thinking surrounding candidates who have a PhD, MBA, and MPH? So any sort of advanced degree will only help you. That's it. It's, it's not going to make you look 
odd or different or anything, but it, it will help you. And that's one of the things that I recommend folks that um, have a rough time with matching. If financially, the you know you're able as an applicant to do an additional degree or to enroll like an mph there's a couple of mph programs and mba programs that are offered online um again they're pricey but they are offered online and you know you can get an mba from um, alabama you can get an mph from uic so university of illinois uh chicago and that's the mph is all online so i would recommend definitely you know, going with an advanced degree, because that just shows more interest, you're showing the interviewer and the program that you're trying to develop yourself as a person, and you're gaining more skills. So it's only going to help you. If you go unmatched, would you recommend contacting programs much earlier in the year showing your interest in their program, June, July? I guess it depends on if you've interviewed in that program, and you got the vibe or if you round it in that program. My recommendation would be I wouldn't blast them with emails because you don't want to be desperate. You don't want to appear desperate. But what you could do is I would continue doing if you can again if it's feasible doing observerships or externships at some of these programs that you think you're going to match at and you can do basically your little audition um, rotation and you can show off how good you are. You get people to know you and then you get them to put in a good for you. Hence my story of the intern right now at our program. That's exactly what happened. Um, I don't think it's a bad idea to like after the fact, if you want to send an email to them, ex you know, extending that you know, you're sorry that, you know, the match didn't work out the way it did, but you're still very interested, blah, blah, blah. And you'll be back in the following cycle. It's not going to hurt you in any way, but I wouldn't phrase my email to make it sound, you know, desperate, like listing all your positive traits, all the research that you've done and stuff like that, because they're not going to read that. But a little short blurb isn't going to hurt. One of my medical school seniors told me that she literally visited all the programs in New York and handed over her CV. She matched eventually. And, um, you know, that's fine. I, I think it just depends on the place. Uh, there's a lot of places that will not accept that. My program would not allow that to happen. Everything had to be done through ERAS. So, New York is a little different because they're very IMG friendly slash heavy because some places I wouldn't call them friendly to IMGs. I would, you know, they're just, yeah, that's my own little soapbox. I think they treat IMGs like garbage, but you know, there's, there's a lot of potential there. And a lot of the programs in New York and New Jersey do go out of the match. So you can technically pre-match there. Um, that was a new rule that was instated that you're either all in or all out. So, you know, it, it might just be that. Um, if that's your goal, that's awesome. There's nothing wrong with doing that, but I, it wouldn't be something that I would recommend to somebody. Andrew, may I just ask you uh, another question? Yeah. Uh, on, you know how you mentioned that, that uh, the current intern who's in your program, they uh, got to do an observership 
with you. So mm-hmm. did they apply for the observership or did they contact someone who, you know, recommended that you do the, did they contact you to do the observership? Because it's not like for, for a lot of programs, it's not easy to get observerships because there's no information on the website. Yeah. Yeah. So this was just, uh, he just called, he, how did he find my number? Um, He's engaged to somebody in that class now. So I wonder if they were dating and she just, you know, dropped my name to him and gave him my email address and so forth. Um, Here's the thing. I am a firm believer that there are programs out there that completely take advantage of IMGs in terms of doing observerships. And you're basically paying an arm and a leg to get a letter that is probably garbage. And I think that there are many resources out there that allow you to do an observership and an externship that is free or minimal fees, meaning, you know, application processing fee. I mean, I think that's a bunch of hogwash too, but sometimes if you get hands-on experience, you know, that fee is included as like a temporary license um, that you can utilize, which is great. So that would be the only thing I would consider paying for. I would never pay for an observership. And I think there's enough people out there. Um, myself is one of them where I just take people under my wing. I mean, there's days where I've had six, seven observers rounding with me in the hospital, in my access center, in my outpatient clinic. Um, and I have no problem doing it. And there's a lot of attendings that are in my institution that are willing to do the same. So I, I don't think you have to pay for an observership. I think you just have to do a little bit more digging and a little bit more asking. Um, and that brings me to a next point in terms of the letters of rec. I would say it's much easier or it's, it's better to get a letter of rec from a attending that you've meshed with instead of one of these generalized letters or observership programs that you pay to be there for X amount of time. You barely see the attending, you know, nothing really happens. You don't get a lot of teaching and then you end up getting a letter at the end. Those letters are incredibly generic. There's a lot of he and she pronoun mismatches in these letters. And even if it's from, you know, the program director at, you know, there or one of the associate program directors or one of the chairs or whatever, they tend to be very blah and it doesn't reflect well. But if you, if you get a no-name person writing you a solid letter that really talks about your characteristics, your personality, how great you were, how much you worked, and all this stuff, that's going to carry you way farther than some relatively popular guy that writes you a eh, letter of rec. So I wouldn't even bother with those. So let's see, what do we have here? Uh, the only place I can find an externship are private practices via those paid programs. Okay, how do I network while I'm there? IMGs have very limited options regarding extra. Yeah, that's true, especially if you're a graduate. So AMA has a program. Um, they have a couple of programs where they you can actually find IMG friendly and no to very little cost for you. So it's not one of these privately owned you know, places. The other thing is kind of doing what you guys are doing, right? How did you find me? A lot of it was Twitter. A lot of it was LinkedIn. And you start meeting, you know, other IMGs in your kind of neck of the woods and per se um, through seniors in your school. I've had a couple observers who rounded with me because it was hearsay. They heard my name from, you know, two other people. Um, One guy was um, from Canada too. Um, 
So he was the one that did one of my videos with me, which I thought was great and taught me how to do it. But it was just word of mouth that came up. So I would say what would be a really interesting thing, thing to do is to set up probably like a Twitter page or a, you know, a LinkedIn page or even, I don't know what's going to happen to Facebook after they go into meta, but, you know, start combining and start making lists of all attendings that are very IMG friendly um, that would take you under your wing. So all you really have to do is just pay for the flight and where you're staying and you can get solid education, get a good letter and so forth. I think that would be great. So observerships are easier to find, but externships are practically impossible in the current climate. I know, I, I, I think that's just, a lot of places are locking their doors, quote unquote, because of this COVID business. And it's getting really tricky in that sense. I'm hoping that once, once this pandemic kind of starts to settle a little bit more, things are gonna become a little lax and the pendulum's gonna swing in the opposite direction. That's what I'm hoping for personally. Oh, and here's another tidbit. So when we're talking about observers and we're talking about letters of rec, my thing is, so I didn't know this until I was asking and attending how to write a letter of rec for somebody. Because um, clearly, I, I don't know what letters of rec look like. We, you know, you sign off that you never see them kind of thing. So when I was talking to my program director, because I was supposed to write a letter of rec, he was telling me, he's like, oh, you know, don't write that you recommend somebody. I'm like, why? But I do. And he's like, no, no, no. It's like, if you say you recommend somebody, that's code for their average. Like you want to say that you strongly recommend somebody or, you know, you got to use other, I'm going to call it flowery, flowery, flowery language. Sorry, tongue tied there um, to really show who this person is, right? Because you don't want an average applicant. You want an above average applicant. And when you're asking for a letter of rec, right, these attendings know. So if you're like, hey, can you write me a letter of rec? I would say, would you be willing to write me a strong letter of recommendation? And I would be more than happy to send you my CV and my personal statement for your, you know, just, you know, for your reference. And if they say yes, then in that email, when you're sending them your personal statement and you're sending them your CV, I would actually write like, you know, thank you so much for doing this. I had such a great time doing this, you know, rotation with you. I, you know, will always remember and then write some points down about like great experiences that you had, because that might end up getting put into your letter too. So you can almost kind of influence your attending to write something that you want them to write. So always make sure you ask for a strong letter of recommendation and then when you're saying that you're going to submit your CV and your personal statement to them, always add little tidbits about how, you know, like personal experiences that you had with them and how they're always going to be memorable and blah, blah, blah. So then that can get included in. It's a nice little trick to have. <laughs> no, most letters of rec are usually about a page, page and a half tops. Like they're not gonna be longer than that. I've read a few that were half a page and it's kind of like, well, this person really didn't care. Um, most letters of rec have a bit of a format. There's usually a formal first paragraph saying, you know, talking about the applicant's name, where they graduated from all that stuff. The middle paragraph tends to be the meat of it. That's the part that you don't want to be generic. That's where you want all the, you know, the personal experiences put in and all that good stuff. 
And then the last paragraph usually tends to be your commendation and recommendation. So this is where you kind of summarize how great the applicant is. And I've went as far as to even say that out of all the people that rotated with me in this past month, this was like, you know, the number one person, or this was in the top five people that have rotated with me, you know, throughout the year, just to push a little bit further on how strong the applicant is, you know, and a lot of that is also because they threw in little tidbits in their email and it jogged my memory like, oh, yeah, that's right. We did have that experience. And, you know, and I put it in for them. Um, I might be you know, the exception to the rule in that case, because I feel like I want to help IMGs out. But I heard from other attendings that they like that a lot because it does give them something. But yeah, most most letters are aren't longer than a page and a half, usually about a page. So let's see, so we talked about um, observerships. Oh, and even when you're writing your email, to an observer, right? I would, I would recommend staying away from a lengthy email and staying away from emails that um, kind of brown nose in that sense, right? Like you can introduce yourself, but saying things like, you know, oh, I read your paper on this and that, and you know, it was so amazing and because of that, I want to learn everything from you, and it's just. It, it sounds like you're trying too hard. I think keeping it very simple is like, hi, I'm so-and-so. I got your name from so-and-so or, you know, if, if you think that's pertinent and then just add it in. Like I'm, you know, I'm looking for an observership. I'm interested in X, Y, and Z. I'm hoping that I could rotate with you and, you know, learn something about the field or whatever, you know, however you want to phrase it and end it right there. And I wouldn't go extremely lengthy with it. And if you want to throw in your CV and all that, that's fine. Scores, hit or miss. I've had people write scores. It, it doesn't matter to me. I can care less if you got a you know a 196 or a 260. You know, it, it doesn't matter to me. I think most attendings kind of fall in that boat. Um, I think they're doing it out of the goodness of their heart if they're doing it. Let's see, what are some other things I wanted to touch on? Um, if we don't have any questions, just to kind of keep this going for a little bit longer. We, um, I talked about stories and I talked about, um, oh, so I talked about taking your weaknesses and spinning it into something uh, positive. You can also do that with your strengths, right? So strengths tend to be very cliche, um, as do weaknesses, right? What's your weakness? Oh, I work too hard. What's your weakness? Oh, I don't know when to quit. Like, you know, I, I would avoid those. I would legitimately think of something and then think about how you grew from that and use that as your example. I think that will go way farther because it's personal. Once you start having these, you know, the changes in tone, you're, you can tell that you're engaged in this, you're, you're committed to this story then, right? And you get the listener. You get the interviewer to really listen to you then because they can pick up on like, oh, you know, this is really deep. This is something that really did something for you. So that's why I like that better. And same thing with strengths, right? Oh, I'm enthusiastic. Oh, I'm this, I'm that. I would, I would take follow the same approach. I would say I would follow an example. So if someone's like, tell me a strength about yourself, I'll be like, like, okay, I remember a time when, you know, 
and then just tell a brief story and just kind of tie it all together. So you get a little bit more insight into you, who you are, you get a strength. And most likely when you're telling the story, you're going to elaborate on that strength on how it either helped you or helped somebody else or how you gain that strength because of something. And again, it's a story, you connect, brainwaves mesh, and you're going to give them something to remember you by. So I think that part's huge. Any other thoughts, any other things that might need to be cleared up? I, I have a question regarding uh, the strengths. Is yeah. it okay to um, use something like, say, I have really, like, one of my strengths is interpersonal skills or, like, just behavioral skills? Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. And I would encourage you to try to, you know, if, if that's the answer, can you elaborate on it? Like you know, like give what do you a, mean about interpersonal uh, skills? Like just because you're talking to me or can you tie it with a story on how that really made you shine and so forth? Or like you can uh, give an example of a patient encounter or um, just uh, um, any sort of encounters that you've had in the past with patients or other experiences you've had in life, as long as you can back it up. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then you can do that in two ways. You can say, you can give the answer, which is interpersonal skills and then tell the story, or you can tell the story and then summarize it as, and that's why I feel that I have really good interpersonal skills. Okay, thank you. No problem. Is doing fellowship before residency a thing? I heard some applicants uh, emailed unmatched fellowship. The answer is yes, it is. Um, and it's interesting too. Uh, my program director was one of those. He, my program director from residency, he finished his uh, residency in Lebanon and he came to Ohio, to Case Western to do his endocrinology fellowship. But he couldn't take the endocrinology boards because to take the uh, specialty boards, the subspecialty boards, you have to take the ABIM exam. And to take the ABIM, you have to go through, I think it's two years of residency. I think you get a little like wiggle room kind of thing. Uh, I know AC Jimmy has a very specific rule about this. So then he went back after he finished fellowship in the same institution and did residency. So he could take the ABIM and then take his endocrinology boards. And then he ended up becoming an associate program director. And then he came to our institution and well, my former institution, and now he's the vice chair of medicine. So he definitely worked his way up the ladder. But yeah, it is a thing. Is there <laughs> one specific resource we can use uh, to find the fellowships or do we just have to find programs ourselves? That offer fellowships? Yes, before residency. through ERAS. So ERAS oh. and NRMP will post uh, fellowships that go unmatched. And in those instances, what you can do is you can probably call the program and see if they'll take you. The other thing is programs that will, so the list comes out on match day, right? So by the time it's available online, some of those spots might already be filled because, you know, obviously people are making phone calls and so forth. A lot of times what programs would do also is that they would call people that they interviewed because here's the thing, the nice thing about it is the list of people that you're interviewing, you get a list of them on match day, whether it's residency or fellowship, and you can see where they went. So if there was an applicant you really liked and they didn't make it on your list, then you can see where they matched. 
And this is, it's very transparent as is in fellowship. So you can see if you interviewed somebody and if they matched anywhere, and if they didn't, then most fellowship programs will call and be like, Hey, you know, blah, blah, blah. We had a spot that opened up. Would you still be interested? And that's how they'll seal the deal on those. But yeah, you can. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Do I have any unmatched positions? Uh, no, not at our institution. But the thing is this, so somebody earlier on mentioned about emailing programs. Um, and I think I gave a little bit of a wishy-washy answer because again, I don't like, I, and I, I'm taking this personally. So again, this is my opinion, okay? And when I get emails about instances like that, I feel like some folks can try too hard. But again, it depends how you phrase the email. There are cases in some programs, and usually they do list them on um, NRMP or on uh, the Frida website and so forth, if they had a resident that left. So things like that do happen. Um, sometimes it's really shady. Like they'll commit and then they'll leave for whatever reason. Sometimes it's because, you know, there is an event that happened that they couldn't control. Um, but that does occur. And then now they have an open spot. And by sending them a message, who knows, maybe they're like, hey, by the way, and pulled you in. I have a story about that too. I had a, I had a guy who did an observership with me. And his fiance had a residency spot in Shands in Florida, so University of Florida. Awesome, top tier institution. What ended up happening is one of the uh, first years dropped out for whatever reason. So they had an open spot. So he called me if I would be willing to write him a new letter of rec and email the program director, which I did. And he ended up getting the spot. I'd like to think it was me, but it probably wasn't. I mean, he was a great candidate to begin with, but he get, ended up getting the spot and he didn't even have to go through the match for it, which was great. So it worked really well. So things like this do happen. It doesn't happen often, but they do happen. All right, let's see. So we were talking about stories. We're talking about spinning. We're talking about, oh, so I think it's really hard and it's almost like impossible to be like, oh yeah, when you go into an interview, you know, try not to be stiff or try to be yourself. Like that's so hard to do. Right. Because I mean, we talked about this yesterday too. You're nervous, right? Maybe this is your only interview. You know, there's all these other variables that come into play. You want to make sure that you hit it off well. What I think is a, a good way to approach it is, you know, everyone talks about, you know, the cliche, like, oh, think about there's like a chicken in the back of the room or something just to make you more relaxed. A lot of these interviewers, when they interview you, they're going to be not bubbly, but they're not going to be stiff or stern. You know, they're going to be smiling. They're going to be happy. They're going to be asking, you know, like, how are you? How's this? How's that? So take that energy and like, take a deep breath and just think like, you know, this is like a friend, you know, this is somebody who's a friend and go into it as a conversation, as opposed to an interrogation. Right. 
have a conversation with the person. If they ask you hard questions, okay, fine, but continue to have a conversation, right? Don't just answer and be silent. Like always go back and forth. There's some advantages right now with the virtual interviews. Um, well, maybe advantages, maybe not. One, you're in the comfort of your own space, right? So that helps, it can help you relax a little bit and so forth. But you can still use the same techniques as you would if you were in person, right? You're seeing the individual, you can still see the room behind them, right? And a lot of people have decorations in their room and so forth. So if you catch something, you know, that catches your eye, like a picture of something or whatever, and it's like, oh, and you can spark a conversation about that. So you can always keep conversations going. That's another thing. Again, dead space is a bad thing. You always want to keep the conversation going. And if you can keep the conversation going, then technically they can't ask you hard questions and you're showing them your personality. It's a huge win. See, are all PDs that awesome has been kind of awesome face facing have been amazing? Heard some horror stories from medical students about awful experiences. Ah, so here's the thing. Uh, I think I mentioned this yesterday too. I think in terms of programs, PDs, I think it all falls in the same bucket. It's very much a bell-shaped curve. You have a select group of institutions, PDs and so forth that are like beyond reach. They're like the untouchables, the ivory tower, you know, things like that. Um, you know, programs will never look at IMGs or PDs that think that, you know, they're second to God in terms of everything. And then you're also gonna have, you know, the other end of the spectrum where you're gonna have, you know, the programs that will take IMGs, but they're notorious for breaking duty hours, making you work too hard, and then when you have to fill out your ACGME survey, they give you a little nudge, nudge, wink, wink, you know, don't give them a bad score kind of thing. So you don't want to ruin it for the people that are coming after you kind of deal like that's shady. And those tend to be the ones that would the horror stories would come from. I think the vast majority fall into that middle realm. Um, and I, I said it was very fluid because I mentioned the culture right now, too, I believe from what I'm seeing and what I've been talking to people about the culture of being more IMG accepting and being more global as a country, I think is really there. And I think these are where, you know, most programs and most PDs are very much open-minded. They're very much normal, right? They're not gonna be, you know, angry or whatnot. And you gotta think of it this way too. The people that complain is because they wanna be heard. Very rarely is it something good. It's usually about something bad. And that's my little hesitation with going on forums and reading what, you know, forums say and, you know, what people post and things like that, you know, take it with a grain of salt. A lot of that stuff is, you know, probably one experience, maybe two out of hundreds, you know, so I wouldn't. Um, you're going to pick up the vibe of the PD pretty much from the get-go, if they're cool or not. And like I said, most of them are going to be pretty cool. So, you know, you can definitely take a good, you know, deep breath and exhale on that one. And then what kind of icebreakers? What kind of icebreakers would you do when you're meeting a new friend? I would treat it the exact same way, right? Obviously, don't be crass. Don't be, you know, don't use adult humor, things like that. But you can be funny. You can, you know, you can comment on anything, 
really. You know, it, it's treat it as you're meeting a new friend or you're meeting like a new colleague. That's the best way to do it because you won't be stiff and your personality is going to start shining through. Now, most of the time too, your personality and all that tends to ease up as everything moves forward. I was just talking with a applicant from Pakistan um, the other day, and I even mentioned this in our little talk together that when we first started, he was, he was very stiff. He didn't really smile. And as we started talking about 10, 15 minutes in, that's when you saw the walls came down. He started to smile. He cracked a joke or two. And that's when his personality came out. And I made a comment. I'm like, this is who you are as a person. Like, I think, you know, if you can find a way to psych yourself up to go in with that mentality and to smile and to be as close to yourself as you can, you're going to win over anybody. And I think most people technically are normal and they have the ability to win over other folks. And I am a firm believer in that. It's kind of interesting, I guess, you know, I, if you look at the interview process and you take a step back, maybe say take two steps back, I think we as IMGs and when I was an applicant, definitely, I think I psyched myself out a lot about the interview process and what it is and what is it about and all that. And again, it's easy for me to say it, right? Because I've been there, done that, and now I'm doing, you know, everything from the other perspective. But I think that's true with a lot of things, you know, and I say that about medicine all the time. Like, I don't think medicine necessarily is tough. I think we make it hard. I think we come up with these ridiculous algorithms and all these goofy things that we have to memorize and acronyms, and we make it a lot harder than it really is. Same thing with the interview process. You know, it should be a compliment that you got an interview because they like what they saw in your application. Like, that's a huge thing, right? You know, you're getting an interview because they like you. Now they just want to see who you are. So the ball's totally in your court. And I think you even have the upper hand in that because in the interview, yeah, you're being interviewed to see how you are. But remember, you're also interviewing them. You don't have to divulge any information about how many interviews you, you might have 30 interviews for all they know. They don't know. And if you're the kind of person that's shining in the interview and they're liking it, they're sweating bullets probably just as much as you because they want you and they don't want to lose you to another program. And I think that's very easily forgotten when you're the interviewee. And, you know, thinking about it now, I can see that if I would have, if I was able to think that way, I think it would have made me relax a little bit more. But again, it's, you know, I'm saying this because I've been there, done that kind of thing, right? It's a little different, you know, from your perspectives, but I, it's very true. It's very, very true. Like you're there because they want to see who you are and they don't want to lose you to somebody else if you're a good candidate. And most likely you are a good candidate. So you can show them that in the interview. Any other thoughts, questions, concerns? I don't want to keep you guys too late um, if I'm just rambling on and on, but I want to share as much of my experience as I can. And I'd be more than happy to do this again too if that helps.
Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. Spread the word. Because then maybe I'll try to do it again. I'm definitely going to try. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, I'm definitely going to try to do more of these, especially like when the next cycle comes around for any of your juniors that are going to be applying and they're like freaking out and all that. Um, and then, you know, I do have a website, hack the match and all that. It's in the process. It's in, it's, it's in working mode, but it hasn't been officially finalized yet. So you can jump on it. You can read about me a little bit more and all that stuff, but um, DM me if you guys have questions. I'm all about, you know, sharing all my experiences. I'm very approachable. Um, whether it's on LinkedIn or whether it's on Twitter, you know, I just love to help you out. And like I said, you know, people are chatting with me all the time. So. Good. I'm happy. I'm happy it worked for you guys. Awesome. Good. And if you guys need a pep talk, either awesome can do it or I'll do my best to do it because awesome's a great pep talk guy. I think, and like you're much, much better <laughs> with all the experience. Uh, I, I'm just all hope uh, and, and positivity, but thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. No problem. No problem. It's totally true. Um, but yeah, and if there's anything else that I can do for you guys, I was kind of hoping to have, you know, much more or uh, more participants. Um, but I, oh, before I, you know, end at all this is like being recorded. Can I post this? Is that okay with you guys? I know like no one really talked. Awesome. You're kind of like the one that was really talking. Would you be opposed if I post this so people can like listen to it? And um, that's why I was trying to read the questions out loud. No, absolutely not. Go ahead. That's okay. fine with me. All right. And yeah, nobody else really spoke. So I hope no one has any objections. And, and I, I hope I haven't said anything um, <laughs> that I yeah. shouldn't have, but it's absolutely fine. No, no, it's totally fine. It's totally fine. I just wanted, um, I was hoping to get into like discussions and dialogue with this, but I think there's some good information out there and I think this can help folks. So I just want to get it out yeah. there. No worries. Thank you. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, if there's nothing else then, then I'm going to bid you guys good night. Please, you know, DM me all that with any questions, concerns, and I will love to try to do this again. Um, maybe around the around the year also in the beginning of interview seasons during and all that. And awesome. If I can help you with your endeavors in any way, I would love to, I had a blast yesterday and you know, I would love to be back if you would have me. So. Uh, absolutely. Like I said, you have a seat uh, on the speaker's table uh, any day. Uh, you're extremely informative and I, re I really appreciate all the time you took to come on. Like I know they drag on sometimes, um, uh, but I mean, for you to stick around for uh, like, the majority of it uh, i really appreciate that so thank you so much for your time and input no it was and great. today you. today was a great session too i mean i learned a lot of things that i did not know before the fellowships uh the interview stuff so thank you for that yeah and i really hope next time people also participate a little more because that's when these spaces get a little better yeah. <laughs> like more interactive yeah we can that's dive for all the some listeners yeah, yeah absolutely no, but thank you everyone for logging in. And again, I want to try to share all this. So, you know, share it with your friends and all that. And I'll talk to everyone later.